So today, we're going to be looking at standing in humility. Um, as Paul said, it's uh, Palm Sunday today. And um, we're not going to look at a normal Palm Sunday scripture or a normal Palm Sunday message in any way. Um, yes, throughout the Western church, people are looking at Palm Sunday. Um, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, the beginning of Holy Week, a week where we, where we concentrate deeply and reverently on that last week of Jesus. And we're going to do that as we always do. Sometimes on our own, sometimes together, especially on, on those of you who have, have, have registered to come for, for a meal on, on Monday, Thursday, or, or all of you who are invited to join us on, on Good Friday as we meditate on, on Jesus' uh, journey with the cross at 7.30. But instead of preaching particularly today, on that message of Palm Sunday, on, on the reason that Jesus rode, rode, rode a cult into the city, or what was going on on the other side of the city at the time, um, and why that impacts what Jesus was doing, and why he was doing what he was doing. I, I don't want to concentrate on the things he did then. I want to concentrate on, on the person he is today. I want to concentrate on how we are called to be imitators of him. And what that means for us as followers of Jesus. We proclaim to follow him. And throughout this series of, of standing, we have, we have looked at different aspects, different characteristics of, of faith, different characteristics of what this journey of discipleship is all about. How we're called to stand in word, faith, forgiveness, confession, prayer, truth. And today, today is about humility. And the passage that I really want to concentrate on today as we look at this is Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bible and you want to, you want to turn to that, uh, please do. Um, and Paul, in writing to this small church in Philippi, he's, he's, he's drawing out lots of different aspects that we're going to look at. But verse 3, verse 3 in particular, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility regard others as greater than yourself. How often do we do that? We don't very often look around and go, better than me, better than me, better than me. Um, yeah, we'll do it in certain aspects. Like I'll say, my wife's a better baker than I am. Or uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's a better soccer player than I am. But we won't do it in the, the normal everyday stuff. We, don't, we just don't really, I guess, get over ourselves <laughs> and, and, and 
and sit at it and regard others as being better than we are. Um, so as we dig into Philippians chapter 2, we're looking at really three uh, different aspects. We're going to go over kind of 1 through 18 verses, and there's three parts to it, really, of this, this passage, this, this section. We're looking at verses 1 through 4, and verses 1 through 4 talk about unity. And then we've got verses 5 through 11, which are about Christ's mind. And how we are supposed to be connected to Christ's mind. And, and then it goes into really a kind of a, a, an ancient affirmation of faith. Kind of a pre-creedal statement. And then out of all of that, we get this last section of 12 through 18, which challenges us to live into what we've just read. Challenges us to, to step up. And raise our game, if you will. So let's start with uh, verses 1 through 4. I'm just going to read them. And then we'll talk about them a little bit. So uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. But to the interests of others. See, what Paul is saying here is we've got to be on the same page. And I don't know how many of you like synchronized swimming. Uh, but I watched a little bit over the Olympics because my kids wanted to watch a bit. And it's quite amazing when you look at one person go under the water and raise their legs and do some kicking. And how they're all doing it in the same except when they're not supposed to and they kind of split off and do their own little separate things in unison. And they're not doing it to make themselves look good. They're not doing it because they want to show off. Everything they're doing is for the benefit of the collective. Everything they're doing is for the benefit of the whole team. Because if one of them tried to do something extra special, it would kick the whole thing out. And it wouldn't work like it should. And the same is true if you think of a group of a cappella singers. They've all got to do their bit. And if they don't do their bit, then the whole thing, frankly, goes to pot. Because they're not there to show off. They're not there to do and make themselves the star and the limelight. They're there to do what they need to do for the benefit of the collective, for the benefit of the whole group. And as a church, we too are called to do that. We're called to, to hold in mind that we're not supposed to be showing off, that we're not supposed to be doing anything really for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the wider group. 
we've got to be, to use the analogy, uh, we've got to be on the same hymn sheet. We've got to be singing the same song. And if you read those opening verses of Philippians 2 in any other way other than a call to unity, we miss the point of the rest of what Paul says. And we're a long way away from actually hitting the mark. See, the church across the world, uh, ourselves here as a branch of that church, of the body, an outpost of the kingdom in Howard County, we are, we are in need. We are in need of being together. We're in need of being unified around the same core objective. But we think about ourselves here, we, we've got lots of minor disagreements that go on, right? Minor disagreements on, on a theological issue or on a preferred style of worship or a political opinion or a cultural opinion, being anywhere on the spectrum. And of course, whenever you get people together, you get uh, clashes of personality and cliques develop. How, when all that's going on, can we actually be united? Is it possible? You see, what Paul is saying isn't unite around those things. What Paul is saying is it doesn't matter right now, the political thought. Because... You can't unite on political thought. Even the people in the political party can't unite on a political thought. So how are we supposed to? Yeah? No matter what political party you're looking at, there's a fraction. So to get a group of people in a room to agree on a political thought is, well, it's a, it's a dream that's not going to be realized. And we're not saying it has to be that we all agree on the type of music that we should have or the leadership style that they should have or the amount of time the preacher should preach for because that, that's not what we're supposed to unite under because that would be senseless because we're called to bring our thinking in all things in line with the scriptures, not the worldly views. Everything should come in line with the gospel. And a simple example of something that uh, can be a bit silly, really. Maybe it's a silly example, but it's the one that comes to mind. If we would try to agree with everything and line ourselves up so that we were in agreement, um, and uh, some people say I've got a bit of a weird eye when it comes to color. You can look at something, it's blue, and I'll say, yeah, it's green because it's like really close in that, in, in that middle space. So someone says it's blue, and I say it's green. And then I'm turning my opinion. I'm like, okay, I can maybe agree with you. I see where you're thinking it's green, or where you're thinking it's blue. And then someone else comes in and says, no, it's teal. And the person who I was arguing with says, actually, you're right, just as I've decided to agree with what they'd said it was before they said it was teal. We're just going to keep going round and round in circles. We're never going to actually agree on anything because someone's going to change their mind and we're not going to be unified in our message. But if we come to the Scriptures, if we are united 
in the scriptures, then everything else will fall into place. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about being united in the gospel. Because when we do that, you say indirectly, everything else is going to fall into place. And we're going to find commonality. Our call as followers of Jesus is to be united in the gospel message that he brought. To stand in the word. That's the first thing we looked at back on the first Sunday in Lent. Because to stand as a disciple, we've got to be learners, right? That's what disciple means, a student. We've got to be a student of Jesus. We've got to study, therefore, Jesus. What is he doing? What did he do? What did he say? And in all of that, we then have to say, well, what are we fixing our eyes on? Are we fixing our eyes on the things that I just mentioned? A political opinion? A cultural opinion? Or are we fixing our eyes on Jesus? Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're much more likely to be united in that. Isn't that a common goal that we should all want to have? Yeah? Because everything in life, if it is shaped by Christ, if everything in my life was shaped by Christ and everything in your life was shaped by Christ, then we're going to be on the same page. Because remember, what is it that being a disciple is? It's stepping from unbelief to belief in all areas of life. And yes, we're not there. But if we want to want to get there and we try to get there, then we're going to be much more likely aligning ourselves as we step forward in faith. And what Paul says in verse 5 is, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It's about having the mind of Christ. That's the picture for the church. Right? Paul goes on in many other places to describe the church as being the body of Christ, of which he is the head. Well, if your mind tells your hand to do something, it should do it, right? Yeah? If your mind tells your leg to do something, it should do it. But if your mind's telling your hands and your, your, your feet and your legs to march, yeah? When I was a cadet, it was a bit fun because you'd always have someone who waddled instead of marched. Yeah? And their arms and their legs would be going at the same time like this. Right? And they'd, they'd, they'd get taught this little skip thing to get themselves back in time. Yeah, their mind's trying to tell them to march, but their body isn't doing it. As the church, we've got to be listening to the mind of Christ to be doing what he wants. Otherwise, we're not actually being the body of Christ. It's really important that we get that. Because to stand in humility as a disciple, it's all about giving over of our own interests and living into what Christ's mind for us is. And that's what gets us into that next section where Paul starts to talk about what is the mind of Christ. And he says, Who though, who though that he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something that was to be exploited. 
But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God also highly exalted him and he gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was and is God. He's equal with the Father. There's no hierarchy in the Trinity. That's what that's saying. Why is that important for us? Well, it helps us to really drill down to Jesus was around long ago, long, long before he ever came to earth that first Christmas morning. He was there as everything we see was being created. He was sat with the Father and the Spirit when they conversed and said, let us make mankind in our image. And although that is the case, although that's the truth, Jesus, Paul, Jesus is writing here, Paul is writing about Jesus that he didn't regard that equality as something that could be exploited or should be exploited. He emptied himself. By emptying himself, Paul is not saying, as some people have, have tried to push, that he got rid of his divinity to become a man and then he picked up his divinity again after he died. No, he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And we profess that in the creeds. By emptying himself, they simply mean he is humbling himself enough to stick to the plan. To go to the cross. Now, he's felt pain as a, hum as a human being. He's felt pain. He's seen one of his best friends die. And he's felt the sorrow and the pain of that. And he's called him back out to life. And he's about to go on and feel a whole lot more pain, physical pain. Jesus emptied himself. He reduced himself, you could say, to being on our level. So that he could feel what we feel. So he could see what we see. So we could experience what it is that we experience. But at no point did he stop sharing divinity with the Trinity. At no point did any of that happen. Because to say so is to go as far away from the truth as you possibly could go. His plan was to go to the cross. Christ as fully man and fully God is fully on the cross. Why? So that he can reconcile the world to himself. You think of the hours late on, a, on first, the first Monday, Thursday. And what's Jesus doing in Gethsemane? We've got a great picture up there, which if you can show it, Craig, for people at home, you know, Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. And what does he say? He says, Father, if you can take this cup from me, Take it. 
but not your will, my will. Not my will, your will be done. Your will be done. He emptied himself in coming to earth. He took on human flesh. Like I said, he felt all that pain. You know? Scriptures tell us he sweat blood because of how just overwhelmed he was with all that was going on. And together as the church, we've got to put others first in the same way that he put others first. Because for him to stand in humility as he did, it was putting us before himself. We need to put others before ourselves. We need to stand on the true gospel message, a message that leads to the kingdom of God. Not a social gospel that leads to a social empire. Doesn't matter how good something is, doesn't matter how well intentioned it is, if it isn't in line with scripture, then it actually is opposing God. It isn't for God. Because the king of the kingdom is Jesus. And we need to rid ourselves of everything else. Because to align ourselves with him is to stand for that fact that we pick up our cross and we carry it. Not that we make him pick up a cross and carry it again for us. Verses 9 through 11 here, they, they show the importance of what it is to exalt Jesus. Not to come, not to, come to him and go, yay, he, he, he's done it for me. He's going to pick up that cross every time I need him to. He is. But as we humble ourselves, we need to be picking up the cross for ourselves like he tells us to. But here... Paul's telling us to glorify him, to worship him, to bend the knee. And what is bending the knee? Bending the knee is it's an act of submission. Something we're not very good at in many cases. To confess that he is Lord. And like I said it last week, we're not really that good at fully confessing that Jesus is Lord. Yeah, we can say it. And Paul tells us that if you say it with your mouth and you believe it in your heart, that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And we're really good at saying it with our mouths. And we believe it a bit in our hearts. But does our whole heart believe it? Does our whole heart say, Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, we know we might want to say that. But we know also that we don't. Because so much of our life isn't yet in his hands as we try to still keep over control. We don't give power and authority to him in his fullness because something we want to hold on to. And for yourselves as a disciple, you're moving from unbelief to belief in all areas of your life. That's the plan. That's, that's, that's the purpose. 
That's what we're trying to get to. And yet, what's that thing that he's saying to you today that he wants you to give over? What area of unbelief? And by unbelief, we're saying you're not, you're not living in that area of your life and acting as though Jesus is Lord. Because if we truly believe he is, and, and one of those kind of illiterate, illiterated, I don't know if it's right, if that's the right way to say it, uh, an alliteration, um, I say, he's the king of the cosmos. He's the king of the cosmos. And wherever we declare him to be Lord, we're going to see his kingdom. Because you can't have a kingdom without a king. So let's make him king in as much as we can. Give over to him as much as we possibly can right now. And the things that we can't, we repent of. And we start that cycle of wanting to want to give it to him. And it's out of that, picking up the mind of Christ, that we come into these, these latter verses where, we, where we're looking at standing in humility, it's, it's getting out of the way, getting ourselves out of the way, emptying ourselves so that our hearts can be full of the Spirit and our minds can be full with the mind of Christ, level, united with his mind. And it's out of that that we come into then verses 12 through 18. Which, uh, which read, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, Paul. Paul has visited this church in Philippi. And he's now writing to them while he's under house arrest in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to see them again. He has no idea. And so he's writing to them. And I think kind of... They're his babies, right? And he's, he's trying to pass the baton, if you will, to them, knowing that he's about to go to his death. And he wants to make sure they're going to be okay. And a main thing that we've got to really get, which some people miss, and, and some people, um, I'm going to say, just lie about as they pick a, pick a verse out of the context or, or, or read exactly what it says. In verse 12, um, Paul says, work out your own salvation. 
Work it out. Now we know that does not mean work to get your salvation. But that's how some people read it. That's how some people are even today preaching that you've got to go and work it. Now we know here you are saved by faith. Saved by grace through faith, which is a gift from God. Okay? And that's Paul. Through and through he believes that and he says that. So to take this one verse out of the context of everything else that Paul has ever written, it's foolhardy. And even the following verse that we've got, Paul is saying, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's not hear that wrong. We don't have to work at our salvation, but we do have to work it out. And by that, the best picture in my mind right now is, is kind of a math equation. Okay? You've got to work out what the answer is. The answer's there, but you've got to work it out. How are you living out your salvation is more a, a, um, is a better way of putting what Paul is saying. How do you work it out? Because I'm not always going to be with you, Paul's saying. I'm not always going to be with you. I want to make sure that as you follow the teachings and the truth that I've given you when I'm here, I want to make sure you can do it when I'm not here. You know, I've not been with you for a while, but I'm probably not coming back, and I'm not going to be able to write any letters to you again. So I want to make sure you got this. Because I care about you and your faith I care about you and your relationship with Jesus. He's aligning them with the scripture, with the truth, so they can stand in humility and lessen themselves so that God can be raised. He's saying stand in faith, stand in truth, stand in the word and live into your forgiveness. And he calls them to do it with fear and trembling. Yeah? It's about spiritual responsibility. And we've all got to take spiritual responsibility when we get old enough. Okay? As we're teaching the younger generations, we've got to take responsibility for them until they can take it on for themselves. But we've all got to step up and be responsible for our own actions. And as our own actions are, as we stand in humility to get out of the way and let God have control, or to treat other people as being better than we are, we've got to be responsible for what happens when we don't do that. We've got to be responsible for the time when we're not obedient to God's word. When we don't meditate on his law and live into it. Because when we are obedient to God's word, that is the only way. It's the only way in which it is possible to put Jesus first. You can't put Jesus first if you don't follow his word. And I'm reminded at this moment of 
my wedding day. And uh, planning the ceremony and not wanting the day to be about me. Not wanting to be about my wife either, but wanting it to be about God. And I'm sure she won't mind me saying she had the same thought. It was the same feeling. It wasn't our day. It was God's day. And in the ceremony, uh, as she walked down the aisle and, and Ray gave her away, um, and we exchanged our vows, that was very, very, uh, that was kind of the beginning of the ceremony. There was still 45 minutes left after we became man and wife. And those, that time was filled with worship songs and scripture readings. And, and my dad gave a sermon. And, and it was just us declaring on our wedding day to each other, you're not the most important thing for me. Which sounds a bit odd to say, but that's what we're supposed to be. Do we always live into that perfectly? No. But that's what we want to get to. The most important thing. What is our priority? And to stand in humility is to say, my priority isn't me. My priority isn't even my wife or my kids. My priority is God. Because as we align to that, we're going to be much more united. Because if all the guys who are married stand up and say, my priority is my wife. Some people might go, yeah, but not your wife, my wife. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but if we all say, my priority is God. We're all on that same page, that same hymnal. It's, it's, it's right there. And we're told to do this without murmuring. We're told to do this without arguing amongst ourselves. We're told to do this so that there's no blemish on the church. What do we mean by blemish? It means something that's not perfect, right? And the church, if it lives into its full potential, it's perfect because it's the body of Christ. And Christ is perfect. And if the body does what the head tells it to, it's going to be perfect. And then we're told to shine as lights in the world. Or as, as I read it, it says, shine like a star. And that reminds me of my favorite movie. And I'm going to show my soft side now. <laughs> my favorite movie is Stardust. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Um, it's about a guy who thinks he loves this girl and as he's talking to her they see a shooting star and they call it a falling star and he says I'm going to prove my love for you by getting that star and bringing it back to you but in order to get that star he's got to cross a wall which is kind of like a space to another dimension and uh, as he gets there, to this star, it just so happens that in this dimension, the star is actually a very attractive woman. And 
he decides to chain the woman up to take the woman to the other woman that he loves, which is kind of like a bit funny because nothing says true love like a captured woman, right? I think that's one of the lines from the movie. Um, but I don't want to ruin the whole movie for you, so I'll cut out the middle and I'll come to the, towards the end where people are trying to capture the star for multiple different reasons, um, but mostly because the star's heart provides eternal life if you possess it. And as so much darkness and evil is around these two characters, um, she says to him, close your eyes and hold me tight. And he's like, what? <laughs> uh, okay. Why? And she says, what do stars do? They shine. And then she shines. And like the whole place is just illuminated. And all of the evil and all of the darkness is just expunged. It's gone. As it's enveloped in light. And that's the picture that this scripture gives me right now. We are called to shine like stars. And the only way we get to shine like stars is when we give our hearts to Jesus and we receive his heart for us. We get to shine and in our shining, we get to expel darkness. Darkness flees from light because the minute light touches it, it doesn't exist anymore. That's what we're called to be. And the only way we can shine like a star is if we humble ourselves. Stop thinking about our agenda and take on his agenda. Allow our heart to be filled with the spirit and allow our mind to be transformed to be like the mind of Christ. And then we can say to those who we love, hold me tight and close your eyes because I'm going to shine and get rid of all that is going on around us that shouldn't be here because God doesn't want it to be here. That's the power that's within us. That's the power that Jesus says is in us. He says, all power and authority I give unto you. And he's giving it to you. But the transaction is Give me your heart, I give you mine. And together we can shine. Let me pray for you. Lord, as we, as we come today, and we know our weakness, and we know our failings, we come and we say we want to want to love you fully. We want to want to give you our heart in its entirety. But in those things that we're still holding on to, Lord, we come. We confess that we're still holding on. We ask for the strength to let go. It sounds odd, but we need more strength to let go than we do to hold on. Help us run the race that Paul talks about. 
not in vain, not out of our own strength, and not trying to, to be anything that we're not, but in simply saying, Lord, I put you above all else. And in putting you above all else, I put others before myself. You call us to stand in humility. And so here we are, Lord, trying, wanting to further stand in humility as we give over of ourselves to you and we take on your heart with which as we possess, we gain eternal life and we get to shine into the darkness that is this perverse generation in which we live now. Come, fill us afresh, fill us anew and as we receive the sacrament, work through us into this week to come as we submit to you, to your will and to your ways for us, for our life and for our church. In Jesus' name.